Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. To those of you who have subscribed to my new podcast, The Tech Meme Ride Home, I thank you. To those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. I think you'll like it. It's a daily Monday through Friday tech news roundup podcast. But today on this pod, we're going to have absolutely one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Eugene Way was an early employee at Hulu, so we'll get some details on that company for the very first time. And he worked at Flipboard and also Oculus, so we'll get some important context, especially on the future of VR and the like. But the most fascinating stories you'll hear today will be about Amazon, where Eugene was the first analyst in the strategic planning department. As you'll hear, Eugene had a unique perspective on Amazon's early strategy, growth, business structure, really almost a historically unique perspective. He could see month to month how Amazon was built in the mid to late 90s, what Amazon was trying to do and why, because he was the guy actually writing the strategic reports. This is such an amazing perspective on such an important company, again, historically. Um, please enjoy this conversation with Eugene Way, because I'm, I'm, really, I'm really proud of this one. Eugene Way, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is... I'm going to inject myself at the very beginning here, which is Please probably do. not the professional thing to do. But so I was a I was a kid obsessed with film and went to school for film and ended up accidentally in tech. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like maybe that's sort of a, a something of a profile to you. But um, when you were when you were growing up, what is what was it that you wanted to to be do that sort of thing? I actually really didn't know. Mm. And even I would say when I was going through undergraduate you had this sense that all the jobs that were out there were the companies that would come recruit, which are all like consulting companies, investment banks, and the occasional Fortune 500 company. Mm -hmm. And so I think my whole career post-undergrad has been a path to discover that there are so many more things you can do in the world than Mm -hmm. you may think early in life. We'll come back to the film thing because I do want to explore (laughs) explore that. Absolutely. Um, So... by nature of, of the subject matter, you know, entrepreneurs, engineers, tech people, I get a lot of children of immigrants. Mm-hmm. And the pattern often is that uh, parents want their children to do something safe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did your parents want you to do the, the lawyer route, the doctor route, that sort of thing? I would, you know, to their credit, I think they probably did think that was the prudent route, but they never really pushed me uh, in a certain direction. And I think that is unusual for a second generation Chinese American like myself. Definitely medicine, law, you know, be an engineer, be, be something stable and deterministic. I like to tell people that you know, the environment that they grew up in, in China and Taiwan, it wasn't guaranteed that you would get to go to college. You know, you constantly had tests to get into the next level of school. And if you ever got pushed out of that system, it was really disastrous from a, a life perspective, you know, socially. And so there was real wisdom in choosing a more deterministic career where hard work equals success. Mm-hmm. Uh, America is just a different, more forgiving environment in many ways. And so I think to their credit, they've always said, well, if you really want to chase after something, <laughs> we support you on that. You know, so if you don't want to be a doctor, you don't want to be a lawyer. When I graduated undergrad, I actually didn't know what I wanted to do. And I 
had applied to law school and was going to go to law school. What was your degree? Uh, I a double majored in industrial engineering and English uh-huh. undergrad. Uh-huh. And yeah, I, law was just the thing I did because I was like, maybe that's what I should do, but I don't know what else I want to do. But I broke my leg right before graduation. Mm-hmm. And I think just a summer sort of sitting around with my leg propped up instead of backpacking through Europe or something. You know, by the end of the summer, I was just like, I'm not ready to go back into the school system. I've just been spending, you know, four years of my life taking, like, course load for two majors, and I'm just burnt out of being in a classroom. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to pay off some school debt, so I stayed home. I got a consulting job and deferred law school. Mm-hmm. And it was during that time that I was using the web because it had come to prominence um, during my last few years in college. This was 95 that I graduated. And the more I looked at it, the more I just realized, you know what, this is going to change everything. And my philosophy from that point forward has always been jump in front of the big wave that you see and let it throw you somewhere. You'll probably end up in the right general direction, and then you can course correct once you have a chance to poke your head up. So I decided, you know, I had deferred law school another year, but then in that year I was like, you know what, I don't want to go to business school or law school. I want to get into this internet thing. And so I applied to all the leading internet companies of that time, of which Amazon was one that I had been buying books from for a bit. Uh, You know, Yahoo, AOL. Back then, you know, companies like The Motley Fool were really Mm -hmm. big, you know, because like these first internet things, uh, it was the age of... um, Pointcast was really popular uh-huh. at work. And I, I wrote to all these places. I really wanted to work at Amazon. I sent them an application <laughs> for a VP of business development. It was the only job on their website where I was like, well, I could sort of make a case, but I was completely unqualified. They wanted 10 years of business development experience. I had zero. I was a kid out of college. But you know, all the other positions were hardcore software engineering positions that I wasn't qualified for. I wrote a three-page cover letter. Just, you know, everybody tells you don't write long cover right. letters. And One paragraph, two paragraphs at Exactly. Most, yeah. I wrote this impassioned <laughs> manifesto. And the recruiter who read it was like, well, this person's not qualified at all for this position, but I love how much effort they put into this cover letter. So she pinned it over her desk and said, look, at some point, if there's a position that opens up, we're going to call this guy back. And I really credit that, you know, cover letter for getting me in the door. Like six months later, they did finally call me. They were like, there's this analyst position. And yeah, that's how I came to be the, you know, kind of the first analyst in the strat planning department. Uh, What was the interview process like? It was, uh, it was fun. You, back then the company was, you know, just under 300 people. And my interview was probably even smaller, maybe two to 250, uh, you know, because of the analyst position interfaces with every other department in the company, I interviewed with basically like the heads of every department. Mm. You're interviewing with the CFO, the head of marketing, the head of editorial, the head of you know operations. Uh, interview with Joy, the CFO, and it was intense. I mean, obviously, a lot of really smart people. You could tell even at that early period. Um, and a lot of rounds. You we got to do multiple, multiple. Yeah, I actually just had that one time because I had to fly out. Okay. I was on a case in London, so I flew across. You know, I didn't even really stop to get anything. I had my suit from my consulting case, and I just went to Seattle for a weekend. I didn't know anything about the city. I'd never been there. 
Um, it was just that one round, and then they called me back and were like, "Hey, you are you're in." And so uh, that that really, I see that as sort of like the defining professional experience of my life, both because I was so early in my career, and because the company was early in its life, mm-hmm. and so. I felt like always that I was growing up side by side as the company was. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Um, so this is kind of sort of your first real job. Yeah. Um, so you don't know at the time when you show up, but now having worked at other tech companies, other startups, looking back, what was what was Amazon like as a company when you show up? Yeah. It was definitely intense. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt. Uh, you know, the thing that people talk about about startups being just crazy intense. That first year I was at Amazon will s- almost certainly be the most I've ever worked in my life. Uh, other than you know, like jamming for finals in college. Uh, you know, when I first got to Amazon, we were growing quickly. And still trying to add headcount, but you know, with the internet, the growth rates can exceed even the rate at which you can staff up. So there's always just more work and than than anyone can handle. And then you add on top of that a company that has really large ambitions. Uh, and we were just working all the time. I lived at the office seven days a week. Uh, we had the notorious like sleeping bags under the desk, and sometimes I would sleep at the office. Uh, I always remember there was a guy who everybody was jealous of him because he had a futon in his office. Mm-hmm. So if he wasn't there that night, it's just like he would get dibs and, and like <laughs> crash out in the futon was really a step up from a sleeping bag under the desk. But it was it was definitely intense. And you know that I'll also remember that first year because you know I started in August of '97. You hit that first Christmas wave where you know you got to supplement the staff in the distribution center. So we went down to the warehouse in Seattle and you're working shifts packing books and then you have your day job and then you know that continued the next year so that first sort of like year and a half was uh, just a blur for me disorganized organized again using your now frame of reference of other companies yeah certainly it was uh you know i think the strat planning process and being in finance and being a public company i entered a company that had a certain level of structure imposed on it you, know, you have companies now that don't go public for years and years, but since I joined a public company, when we had the Wall Street schedule to keep up, we had to you know, prep the forecast every month. And so that always added a level of discipline. Now around that, with the growth and all the different projects we were trying, there was a certain level of chaos, mm-hmm. but it was always a, a kind of a controlled chaos. You know, I think the hard part of And one of the stressful things is, and this is for almost all internet companies that have uh, rocketed to success, you are trying to, you know, uh, deal with your business complications (laughs) at the same time that you're actually just trying to grow up as a company. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of young managers maybe who haven't managed at large companies before. So you're both trying to build the rocket ship and try to drive it at the same time. And that can be... um, you know, that can be a high-stress type of environment. But it's also exhilarating mm-hmm. in a way because everything just feels like you can make it happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everything is just blank sheet possibility. You can brainstorm ideas, and the next thing you know, you're, you're just working on it. And so uh, you, know, you can't trade that level of uh, just, uh, I don't know, craziness. So as you mentioned, you're an analyst. 
uh, in the strategic planning department. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Yeah, so if you think of all the accountants in the finance department as sort of backwards looking, strategic planning is their counterpart that's sort of forward looking. You're projecting what the business is going to do, what the cost structure is going to be, how many orders you're going to get, how many customers you're going to acquire. You're doing analytics. Yeah, and a big part of it was... You know, we were, we were both the forward forecasting part of the business, which is, you know, important for fundraising and, you know, talking to investors and all of that. Uh, but we also were sort of the uh, analytics hub of mm-hmm. the company. Uh, Joy, especially as a CFO, really wanted to have a deep understanding of every part of the business. Joy Covey. Yeah. Yes. And so we had this thing called the analytics package, which was something that we would put out that was kind of our, you know... it. In this day and age now, most people are used to having these dashboards um, from different software packages that create graphs that you can show on TV screens and everywhere. But back then, we actually generated this out of Excel and making graphs and printing out just thick, hard copies that we would distribute to key managers throughout the company. Um, So that was what I spent a ton of my first year on, was just Mm -hmm. generating that, expanding it. Um, adding analytics as there were more pieces of the business that needed understanding. And, you know, that, that's a process of also just figuring out how to actually build things to track the numbers that you want to have. But I've never, even, even now with all the tools that we have today, I don't think I've been at a company that had such a rigorous understanding of every aspect of the business. And I think part of it extends to the fact that, you know, we were a retail company, you know, so many of the internet companies now are software or social media and, you know, super high margin businesses. Um, you know, retail is just an inherently a lower margin business, even though, you know, e-commerce has some advantages. Uh, so you have to just be more rigorous. You know, every, every decimal point and everything matters in a business like mm-hmm. that. When you are really into operations and logistics, it forces you to a level of rigor that I think has always been healthy. Um, and I have carried that with, with me. Well, you, you wrote a great blog post about this that I'm going to link to in the show notes. But so in this analytics package that you're printing up and delivering to, to people's desks, um, you basically have a snapshot of the entire company mm-hmm. at any given moment. Like, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to just quote from some of the things like, you, you know, the salary of every employee, you know, the time it takes for a book to be delivered, mm-hmm. you know, what percentage of customers from every hundred orders will have a, an issue that they have to reach out to customer mm-hmm. service. Um, if you gain a customer, how many of their friends and family would become new customers? So like, again, you mentioned social media, like that's the sort of data that now every tech company is obsessed with. Mm-hmm. Allow me to geek out yeah. as a history nerd. Yeah. At one of the biggest, greatest companies of all time, <laughs> at the very early stage, mm-hmm. you have your finger on the pulse of that mm-hmm. every single month. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was, it, I, I often look back on that and just think it was a miracle because you know, I had not gone to business school or anything. This was my business education. It was like an internet MBA in a way and it's in a way you get to see because you're presenting to the public on every quarterly's earnings call you're choosing what metrics to share and then there's gap requirements for what you have to report out but then you also see the internal metrics that lie behind that and how you choose what to share with the public and it gave me a deep appreciation actually for what a tough job it is actually to be an external analyst of a company mm-hmm. when all you have to go off of are gap 
required figures that are presented every quarter. There's so much more underneath that mm -hmm. that give you a sense of the true dynamics of the business, and uh, that's why that's that's a tough job. If anyone at Amazon is listening and those uh, packages are sitting in a in an archive somewhere. Uh, <laughs> donate them to like a business school or a museum or something. I'm not kidding. Yeah, that would be yeah. so amazing to look through, like a September '97 report or yeah. something like that. No, absolutely, and it's fun. I, I think I still may have one or two of the cover letters that yeah. um, accompanied that, where you had to look through the numbers and generate some sort of narrative about what happened to the business in that month. And it was good. You know, I I think an uh, underappreciated side effect of the analytics package and writing that cover letter was that, you know, I, I don't know if people remember this now because Amazon gets so much positive press, but back then, a lot of the press was really negative. Mm -hmm. You know, Amazon.bomb, mm -hmm. famously the headlines, people thought Barnes & Noble was going to crush us. You have a lot of young employees at a company who see all this negative, like my parents would send me press clippings and ask if the business was okay, if I would be out of a job. But when you look at the analytics package, you send out this cover, you're like, wow, the business is great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're growing. Here's a forecast of the next couple quarters. By the way, we've been right, or within a few percentage points of right on our revenue forecast every every other analytics package. You say that in the blog post that um, you were so granular and so specific about all the data that you're reporting that you could, within a two or three percentage point, predict quarter on quarter how yeah. the growth was going to go. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's one benefit of being in retail where it's a lot of small transactions, like books. It, it, it would be harder if we just started off and we were selling, I don't know, cars or TVs, like things that don't happen very frequently. But small purchases that happen on a discretionary basis on a high frequency, sort of like a low average transaction size basis, are actually very predictable when you get to a certain scale. And the only variable then is, well, how many people are you going to add? Like, how many customers are you going to add? It turns out if you break that problem down into its component pieces, each of those pieces was actually fairly predictable for us at the time. Yeah. I don't know that they would be as much so today, given that the Internet's much larger, there are the smartphones everywhere, you know, the pace of growth can be uh, accelerated to a degree that it wasn't possible back then. But... You know, we knew we were going to acquire a certain number of customers from AOL, Excite, Yahoo, the search engines, and we paid for those. We knew a certain amount would come through our affiliate program. We had a budget for that. So, mm -hmm. And then we knew that word of mouth was a huge factor and that it was pretty consistent, you know, month after month. Like, if we add a customer this month, on average, they're going to bring in a couple more customers, you know, next month. And so just as long as you know how many you got last month from word of mouth, on, the, on a basis, you could predict actually the next month you would add that many more. And and since the basket size for books was predictable, all the variables were actually very predictable. It's still amazing to me, though. Within a couple percentage points is, is sort of stunning accuracy. Uh, you see now social media companies, right? They have so much trouble <laughs> quarter to quarter telling Wall Street, like if you ask like Twitter or a company like that, hey, what are your earnings going to be? They, they have no visibility. Um, we were lucky. We were a public company that had almost absolute control of of where that was going, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take take me through the rest of your time at Amazon, and then I'm gonna circle back and ask a couple sure other questions. Um, so, like, uh, I think uh, Amazon passes a billion in sales in '99. I think that's right. Yeah, so, I don't, yeah. So I don't you guys remember. are like you said, you can see 
even though you know you only report so much to Wall Street, you can see we're growing, we're doing well. Because I think in Bezos's original business model, he was expecting like two hundred million dollars by the year two thousand. Uh-huh. Right, right, <laughs> right. And so you know things are going well. What is it? And then the and then the bubble bursts. Mm. So take me to the time of ninety nine into two thousand two thousand one at Amazon. Yeah. Well, we even from you know the. The first month or so that I worked at Amazon, we were already working on researching other product lines Mm -hmm. in businesses. Oh, that's something that I ask every Amazon person. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Did you know from day one that it was going to be everything, or did you? Was that something that evolved? I think Jeff knew very early on. Famously, he researched a number of different product lines before starting Amazon. So, in the back of his head, I think one of the most critical things about Amazon that is underappreciated, is that Amazon was never so deeply attached to just being a bookseller uh, or just a domestic bookseller. From the time I joined Amazon, I worked with the first class of MBAs on business plans for video, music, software, magazines, international. And we were contemplating which of those to go into next. You know, Jeff had this saying that brands are like quick drying cement. I don't know where he got it from. Someone, some various people have taken credit for for coming up with it. But you know, he's very conscious that the longer that Amazon stayed a bookseller, the more people were just like, "Oh, Amazon, that's where you go buy books." And he's like, "No, I, I want to be a place that's known for you know, you can buy anything, find anything." And so that flexibility in our self conception as a company. Uh, allowed Amazon to just continually reinvent itself rapidly without getting attached to you know its earliest customers. I think it's easy like if you're building a social media company for example and you're not quite sure what you're going to be, there's a temptation to take your earliest high usage cohort and say, "Okay, that's what our business is and those are going to be your most vocal heavy users." Uh, but they'll hold you hostage, you know, like the Twitter thing with character limits and everything. People are complaining, I don't want more characters, and and all of that is a, is a classic example of your first cohort hijacking your business. Uh, and the tendency is to play into that because, okay, that's what works. Right. Let's juice that for growth. But... Yeah, yeah. And so the other thing I would say that was really healthy for Amazon from an early start is that we were going into businesses that had uh, a lot of global metrics. So if you wanted to know the size of the global book market, mm-hmm. you could find that. Same for music, same for video. That always gave us a real tangible sense of sort of the asymptote that we were headed towards. Like, look, if you capture 100% of the global book market, this is as large as it's ever going to be. Maybe on the margin you can get a few more people to buy books or things like that, but it's a pretty predictable behavior. And I think what's healthy about that is when you know what your limits are, you know you have to change what you are to expand your ceiling mm-hmm. as a company. Mm-hmm. And so we were consistently aware of, okay, like there is a limit to our business. And to grow it, we will have to change what we are. And so I think just from the beginning, Amazon has, a, has had a fluidity of its self-identity that allows it to do things like Amazon Web Services, which seems highly <laughs> you know, tangential or right, orthogonal right. to the retail business. Uh, and that's good. I wouldn't say that there's no way we knew all of this up front, um, but just having that open mind to it mm-hmm. is really, really critical. And so, you know, 
going into 99 and everything, we, we famously had a, I had to go to this uh, planning offsite um, early in my tenure at Amazon. And I was just really the analyst to bring all the data and all the VPs were there. And it was a meeting to plan out the future of Amazon. And Jeff had asked people, hey, what do you think our revenue will be in like the year 2000 or 99 or something like that? I remember, I mean, the numbers were all over the, the map. And and honestly, you know, a lot of it depended on the growth of internet usage and a lot of factors that people didn't consider. But certainly, I think uh, Amazon was exceeding its most optimistic forecasts as we headed um, into that bubble period. Now, we could always sense one of the things that in finance, especially, we were attuned to was you remember, like pre crash, it was a pretty heady time. There was a lot of capital flowing. And we had a sense in finance that, look, uh, whatever happens in the future, this is a possibility that the market's going to crash. Like it seems a little bit ahead of itself. And in, if that happens, <laughs> we don't want to be held hostage by Wall Street or um, you know, their ability to restrict uh, our access to capital. So we did, at the time, the largest sort of convertible debt offering just you know, mm-hmm. just in case. Mm-hmm. And it ended up working out perfectly because the crash did come. We did have a billion dollars of, you know, from that convertible debt offering as a treasure chest for a rainy day. And what it allowed us to do was as a whole bunch of companies folded, we didn't have to change our strategy or our plans for ambition, uh, uh, for growth internationally into other product lines, adding headcount. Everything we needed, we could do. Um, you know, so. you, you spoke about the negative um, headlines around Amazon. I remember when that debt op- uh, that debt round happened. That was a, a, another reason for people to be negative. Oh, if Amazon needs a billion dollars, like yeah. you know, and they're the, the the cream of the e-commerce crop, you know. Yeah. So like that's right. funny. Like you're saying that that was perfectly timed. It ended up being the right move. But even at the time, that right. was more food for the thought. The yeah and. And, you know, that comes with being in a business that was had some level of predictability and also having enough forward-thinking plans to know that we would need some amount of that capital. Mm-hmm. Maybe not all of it. I think in the end we didn't need all of that capital because the, the business ended up generating enough cash to, um, you know, support most of the ambitions we had. But, you know, I think the foresight in sort of raising before <laughs> we necessarily needed it was hugely critical. Uh, and that's, that's one of the tricks of being a public company is dealing with that. Uh, but, but I think, you know, with so many internet companies now not going public as early, I think there's good and bad to it. Obviously, if you're a public company, to some extent, the stock price and how it's doing and that perception can influence your employees and the morale and things like that. On the other hand, I think it's just very healthy to have the discipline of being a public company and of having to open your books to the public and report on that quarter after quarter, having to refine that narrative that you're going to give on the earnings call and give the public guidance. It has a bunch of positive effects throughout a company. Um, the the bust happens and... Um you know, there was a slew. Everyone remembers the e-commerce companies, you know, the, the sock puppet and all that stuff. Sure. Um, and and Amazon famously goes down to like five dollars the stock price. Yeah, yeah. Um, and right. you're looking at the the numbers again. Like, was there ever uh, a fear that hey, maybe it could be us too? Or 
I, I never did, and, and probably from having my pulse on every aspect of business, there was, uh, I had a level of confidence that maybe people who weren't as close to it had, but I never saw anything really fundamentally change about the fundamentals of the business. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the internet was still growing. There were trends that, you know, we all expected to continue. More people would get access to the internet. The internet would get faster. More people would become used to buying online. Exactly. Like, people forget that, that how, exactly. like, even when the bust happens, it still wasn't yeah. as prevalent. And as we saw still. our customer loyalty was high. It wasn't like we were churning out customers. Um, one thing I, I want to go back and add, actually, which mm. I think is really important um, that Amazon understood. So I talked about how we knew sort of the size of the markets we were going into and that they had limits. The other thing we knew from a very, very early time at Amazon was what people didn't like about online shopping. Like, I think a lot of business today, they're very focused on growth and, hey, who's using our product and why are they using it? And they need to obsess more about the people who used the product and then gave up. Like, why aren't they using your product? For what reason? We had this survey that we would do externally of customers who both shopped at Amazon and didn't shop at Amazon. And the one of people who shopped at Amazon was one question after you placed an order, it would just pop up a question. And the external one was through a market research company. We're like, why don't you shop at Amazon? Or the question would be, why don't you shop more at Amazon? And from the beginning, the answer was very, very consistent. People hated paying for shipping. Mm -hmm. So it turns out in e-commerce, this is the number one enemy of, of more online shopping. People have a psychological aversion to paying for shipping. And so I think it's, it was so beneficial to us as a company to have a single bogey that we could continually iterate around and that we knew would unlock a ton of upside for us. We had super, shape, super saver shipping. Or actually prior to that, what we did in the shopping basket is we showed you, hey, since you're not paying sales tax, right. uh, even with shipping, you're saving on the order. But you know what? People are like, yeah, but I could still drive to the store. I mean, they're irrational right. about the it. Right. It's the guilt. No, it's yeah. not irrational. Yeah. It's the guilt. If I was just not so lazy and yeah, just yeah. went out to the real world and got it, yeah. I wouldn't have to pay that fee. Yeah. Exactly. Then, uh, so Super Saver Shipping was the first iteration. Like, If you buy $25 or more of these items, you would get your shipping free. Uh, but the problem with that is then people end up waiting on purchase and it decreases their purchase frequency. And you don't want that. You want, uh, I have an impulse. Yeah. Buy. You yeah. want people not to think about like, Purchasing as this like really strategy, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't want them playing a game. So then, uh, you know, all, all these things end up leading towards uh, Amazon Prime today, which famously sort of really unlocked the purchase behavior of people when they don't have to think about the shipping fee at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out, and I think a lot of businesses, it's it's harder to come up with that single factor that holds back your business. Um, but I do think analysis of customers that aren't with you is is hugely critical. So, um, the uh, again from an, another great blog post that I'll link to, um, you point out that uh, Amazon's core business always generated money, mm -hmm. right? And so this fallacy, as you call it, mm. of that Amazon uh, doesn't right. make money, right? It's right. it's because so what. The point I'm trying to make is you were able to see from day one that yeah. in our core businesses, we're making money. It's just we're continually reinvesting. Um, right. So that's why you had that confidence. But um, it, 
and and that's so the reason I bring that up is because like that's what sort of killed all the other e-commerce players right is that famously pets.com has to pay more to get that 40 pounds of dog mm-hmm. food over how come that wasn't an issue for Amazon what did Amazon do differently what did what did you guys solve about e-commerce that the other guys didn't solve mm-hmm. well even you know when I joined it August 97 we made money off of pretty much every order mm-hmm. so you know, you're right. Like people obsess over Amazon's either showing profits or not in a quarter. But but as you know from Gap earnings and things like that, I mean that is uh, that is the wrong sort of time horizon to analyze a business. Now, 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 most smart analysts understand that to understand any business, like people are like, hey, Uber keeps losing money. Like you really have to analyze the unit economics. Like mm-hmm. what is the the uh, economic output of one single transaction with the business? And in retail, actually, it's not as hard to analyze as, as many businesses, but most people just read the headlines. You know, they're like, oh, hey, Amazon lost $100 million this quarter. The business is terrible. But on a single order, we make some gross margin. So after all the variable costs uh, of the business uh, of that order are accounted for, you have some money left over. And then you apply that to all the fixed costs of your business, which, uh, you know, there's, there's some part of your infrastructure that is going to be a fixed cost and all of that. Uh, fixed cost business are a well-known quantity in the business world. And you know that it's just about achieving a certain level of scale where your, your uh, variable you know, profits can cover your fixed costs. So you want as many orders as possible applied against that same fixed cost base. And so it's a very simple model, but you know, look, most financial reporting is very lazy and they're not gonna dive into those details. And it's, it doesn't give you the sexy headline. Um, the other aspect of our business, which is unique to e-commerce, is that for books, you know, if you buy a book from Amazon, we charge your credit card, and then we, you know, at the time that the product ships out, that might be about a day. Mm-hmm. We don't pay the publisher for that book for you know net sixty, net ninety, mm-hmm. and so with each order, unlike a traditional retail business, we were actually generating cash. You have that most, float, yeah. Yeah, most retail businesses, the faster they grow their sales, the more cash poor they get. Mm-hmm. They, they often run out of capital and have to go raise money. We were the opposite. The faster we grew, the more cash we generated for our business. That allowed us to not always have to rely on outside capital to fund our operations. Um, so that's an underappreciated aspect of our business that you know some analysts like Bill Gurley and others understood that that effectively, you know, could make your return on investment capital much different than a traditional retail business. So uh, I think, you know, if you look at other commerce businesses, they were also probably fixed cost businesses, but couldn't achieve the scale to cover their fixed costs. Or maybe they spent too much on advertising. I mean, all of them had different challenges to deal with. Uh, Retail is a inherently thinner margin business than just selling software and things like that. So your margin for error is is lower. But you make it sound so rational. The calculation has just been, if we turn this into a larger sales base, we'll make more cash, mm-hmm. as opposed to flipping that mythical switch or whatever and turn on the profits, which is what everyone supposedly wants Amazon to do for years. Mm-hmm. But it, it it's just seems like a rational calculation. Like, if... If we can just get a larger sales base, then we'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the best strategies I always say are simple um, but hard to execute on. Like simple to understand, hard to execute on. Uh, 
achieving a large customer base <laughs> is easier said than done. You know, a lot of commerce competitors of ours were focused on one product line or another, you know, e-toys, pets.com, or things like that. Everyone uh, everyone was going after that category killer, you know. Exactly. That's what happened exactly. in retail right before the web, so mm-hmm. everyone thinks it's going to repeat. But, yeah. but it turns out those all have challenges, right? Like pets, you've noted that mm-hmm. the shipping costs are super high for products. Toys, it's a very lumpy sort of purchase pattern, so you're not going to get that consistent repeatable pattern. And, you know, by that time, Amazon was already into multiple product categories. And so as long as we made just Amazon the best shopping experience, period, and continue to add more categories, we could both increase our share of wallet and potentially add more customers as we added more products that appeal to them. And I think our belief as a company shifted from, hey, we're a better way to shop, to, hey, we could be the best way to shop you know, over time. And we just knew with enough time and enough iterating on that customer experience, that we could achieve that at some point, that people would just actually prefer to shop at Amazon versus saying, well, you know, for certain hard-to-find books, I prefer to use Amazon, but I'll still go to you know, Barnes & Noble to buy mm-hmm. other books. No, we want it to be the best way to shop, period. And that, that takes time, improving your logistics. Uh, we, we knew, right, shipping cost mm-hmm. is a huge issue. Once you solve that, then the next big bogey is shipping speed and reliability. And it turns out to solve that problem is a multi-decade sort of process of constant small improvements, constant iterating on your distribution network. You know, people forget Amazon once had many super large distribution centers, like a couple of those scattered around the country. Now they have many small distribution centers so they can be closer to the customer. Now you can order certain things on Amazon and get them the same day in certain cities. Um, so, so I think the... <laughs> The ultimate endpoint is to get to that point where you know someone can order something and it's just is there, like almost instantaneously. Mm-hmm. Who knows? It'll be you know it'll be drones or it'll be some newfangled network. Maybe there'll be self-driving vehicles delivering things. But but I think the the end goal is to shorten that distance between I want something and here it is. You say the best way to buy anything. Uh, is it also the only way to buy anything? Like, is is Bezos's big idea ultimately? I'm going to be retail. We're going to be all of retail. I, well, I I think you may have uh, an ideal to be the best way to shop. I don't know that you have to be. I don't even mean yeah. that in a like a monopolistic way. I yeah. just mean like. Because if you think about it, in yeah. Mas- Maslow's hierarchy yeah. needs type of way. Right, right. I need Amazon is what delivers. <laughs> yeah. Right. Any, yeah. any product. Yeah. I think, well, we always took comfort in the idea that uh, in certain categories there might be more than one winner and it was okay. Like it wasn't a winner take all scenario necessarily. Like retail tends to be uh, a little more like that than, say, social networks or things like that where network effects are so powerful. But there's certainly no doubt that if you're the best way to shop <laughs> and you can deliver at scale, uh, more and more people should choose to shop with you over time. Um, so we'll see. I think their obsession will always be, you know, hey, let us be the best way to shop in every way possible. And whatever happens, happens. I think the customer focus of the company, while you know, it sounds so trite to say, hey, we're the most customer-focused company in the world or we're obsessed about the customer experience. 
Um, and yet, there are a number of things culturally that fall from that that are really good. One is you don't have to be unhealthily obsessed with competition or worry about like what the competitions are doing. Uh, a second is that you will consistently uh, find that you have to innovate more because customers are always unhappy about one thing or other. The like, experience can always be better. I don't think customers are, are always good at telling you what they want, but they're good at telling you what they don't like or what holds them back. Like, that's why we knew that shipping was a huge issue for online retail. And so being customer-focused you know, allows the company to continue to be sort of nimble and continue to work hard to try to improve the experience rather than ever getting... Um, self-satisfied. Before we leave Amazon, uh, tell me about Jeff as a boss. Well, I never reported to Jeff directly, but mm-hmm. um, I, I got to see him in action. And I would say uh, Jeff is fascinating to me because he's both brilliant, you know, just like a generally brilliant person, um, and also you know, very good about um, communicating out his thinking to the company so that it can capitalize on. You know, I both think, you know, Jeff is interesting because he's building Amazon, the business, uh, you know, online retailer and all of that. But he's also also been thinking about Amazon as an organism, the organization, Mm -hmm. and how to improve upon the organization. Like most sort of first principles thinkers he wasn't uh, prone to accepting all the conventional wisdom that comes about this is how you run a company this is how you run meetings this is how companies should operate and he was always asking why we maybe did things a certain way and poking at it and if he didn't like it like he's like why are all our meetings like everybody sitting around watching someone present powerpoint slides this doesn't seem like the most efficient way for us to debate this idea or analyze it. Famously write essays. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't think that works at every company because, you know, if you don't have a CEO like Jeff and a culture that supports it, then that just seems like uh, a silly tactic. Mm -hmm. But if it's it's part of the culture of the company and supported from the top down, then it works. And so I think that's the fascinating part is, like, even if Jeff weren't running Amazon (laughs) as a retailer... Uh, if you were running anything, he would just be an interesting thinker to observe and, and to learn from. And so that, that's why I, I always treat my time at Amazon as, yes, I was learning a little bit about e-commerce and everything, but I was more just learning about how to be just a first principles type thinker about how to build any sort of successful organization. Did you report directly to Joy? I actually reported to Keith, okay. uh, who ran the strat planning department, uh-huh. and Joy ran both sides of finance. Tell me finance. a little bit about Joy. Yeah, Joy is, uh, you know, alongside Jeff, another one of the more brilliant people um, I knew. Unlike most CFOs, which you know have a reputation for being sort of like, you know, numbers people, she was, but she was uh, very observant about other aspects of the business. And, you know, the analytics package and its sort of deep analysis of every aspect of the business gave her sort of a, also sort of a comprehensive view of how the business fit together and how it worked. And what I always appreciated about her was, uh, you know, I think most CFOs are, have a reputation for being very conservative. 
in terms of funding new ventures and things like that. But I think Joy was, you know, she liked to play offense. Mm. She, the fact that we went out and raised all that convertible debt, part of it is so we could accelerate our ambitions to grow into new markets and new product lines and all of that. She understood that the economics of some businesses are that, hey, there are first mover advantages. There can be some level of customer lock-in. And so we have to move faster, not slower, uh, on, on many of these fronts, that that was the right strategic move. So I always appreciated that about her. So you leave Amazon in 2004? Yes. And you go to film school? <laughs> well, at first, I moved to New York. I, mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to go into filmmaking, uh, which, you know, it's kind of a strange decision at that point. But also, you know, just like when Jeff talks about his regret minimization framework yeah. for starting Amazon, I, I had some element of that. You know, I was young, I wasn't married, and I have a family depending on me. So if you ever have an interest in that, like, what better time to do it? You know, if you don't do it then... Um, it gets harder and harder. So went to New York, uh, learned to edit first at this uh, sort of school taught by working professional editors uh, called the Edit Center. And started doing a little bit of editing work, you know, editing like reality TV and documentary, indie documentaries and friends acting reels. And, but then I realized, you know, quickly that I actually wanted to write and direct. Like I wanted to learn more about the whole filmmaking process. So I moved out to L.A. to go to a film school at UCLA. Um, I wish I could have spent more than two years in New York, but, but I'll always treasure that, uh, <laughs> that time. And after a year of film school, which was a ton of fun, um, I got a call from my old um, manager at Amazon. So, you know, at Amazon, after finance, I, I did mostly product work for, you know, six years. And my manager on Amazon Video was Jason Kyler. He was like, hey, I've been recruited to run this venture out of L.A., which would become Hulu. And what are you doing this summer? And if you're a film student, you know, like the summer jobs are all like, hey, do script coverage, make coffee, and, you know, we'll pay you nothing. And I was like, that doesn't sound like much fun. Going to help Jason launch this thing sounds like a better summer job. So started helping out on that front. And when the summer ended, it was time to go back to school. We hadn't launched Hulu yet. And I was, you know, responsible for the product part of it. So I was like, I'm going to just stay on. It's kind of like when I went to Amazon and, and skipped out on law school. Sometimes there are things that are more timely in your career and you have to jump on those. And there are plenty of other things like film school, law school, business school, and, and things that can happen at any point in your career. Uh, but, but, you know, with the Internet, everything moves quickly. So and then I ended up staying on and, and running the product team there for three and a half years. It's first three and a half years as a company, um, which was a fun ride. Well, let's, let's go into the background of Hulu just for a second. Um, uh, in, the, in the history that I'm dealing with, I can't think of another example of a bunch of companies getting together and doing a consortium to fend off a, a digital threat or whatever. That yeah. actually kind of has worked out, you know? Yeah. Like, um, yeah. so Hulu is basically formed in the wake of YouTube, right? And, 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 or maybe even Napster. So mm-hmm. the, the film companies, Hollywood, needs a, an answer mm-hmm. for video going digital. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me yeah. what you, any impressions yeah. on the early yeah. years of Hulu? And- well, I'm, you know, look, I'm with you. When Jason first told me about it. I had, I had actually first read about it in an article in like Variety or The Hollywood Reporter. And when I saw it, I remember writing something publicly like, oh, this is going to be a disaster. Mm. You know, like anytime 
couple of old media companies get together to do well, something. Well, he did it 15 times <laughs> yeah. in music. There was always a, yeah. yeah. And he was just like, I thought it was a joke. And, and then Jason told me that that was the thing he's being recorded. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, that is uh, crazy. Uh, but a couple of things gave me more hope than others. One was that they brought in Jason, who's like a, you know, had grown up in the internet ages and, and, and understands that world and is smart and and the second was in meeting with the media companies it seemed like they were willing to give us more free reign than um, I had expected they'd let us build our own team um, have our own office space and uh, you know we, we definitely had some push and pull with them on things uh, notably what was the initial catalog of content they were going to give us I mean it was a constant tug of war to say look you, you have to put more stuff online you have to be more aggressive about it now you know I think the company was formed a lot in the in in that age of the growth of piracy mm-hmm. and so you know the idea is to offer a sort of a legal alternative that's more convenient than you know pirating all of this content and and the fact that they gave us the freedom to recruit a team of people from Microsoft, Amazon, Google, you know, like traditional tech companies gave me some hope of sort of reforming the industry from within because I had no doubt that the internet was going to sweep across that industry like like it swept across so many industries, right? It's just a matter of time mm-hmm. uh, before these things happen. And there are two paths to sort of dealing with that. One is that you're like the disruptor. You come from the outside and you're like, look, I'm... I'm just going to come and flank, outflank this industry and, and crush it from without. Um, one of the appealing things about working from within, at least on the Hulu perspective, was just that they already had access to so much great premium content that had word of mouth. Uh, I, I wanted there to be a healthier relationship between you know, creators and their audiences. I, I really have always been uneasy with this world where consumers are like, ah, like, screwed the media companies, and uh, I'm just going to pirate all this stuff, and I don't feel any guilt about it, because having been a film student, having, like, one of my undergrad majors was English, I feel an affinity for creatives. Like, I think creatives should be compensated for their work, and I appreciate a world in which creative people create art that makes life uh, enjoyable, and uh, and I, I, you know, it saddens me to see creatives who are struggling to make ends meet and trying to create work. So I, I've always wanted to come to a business model that made it easier for artists and creatives to make a living. So for a long time, I think at Hulu, we actually had the support, especially of Peter Chernin, who's leading the board, to do things that maybe they would not have done had they run Hulu themselves. Uh, I give them a ton of credit for for that. The thing we we were always going to struggle against was that it was a JV with multiple owners. And secondly, structurally, if you look at media executives, like their personal success wasn't really directly tied to Hulu's success. And also, the piracy threat sort of dissipated a little bit over time. Um, I think in the wake of YouTube and everything, there was this thought that, oh my gosh, like the industry might just go to zero and people might not pay for anything. And, and quickly people saw like, all right, like, you know, some parts of the business might get chipped away, but it's fine. You know, we can all make our payments on our houses and the Hollywood Hills and, and everything. And so that, 
That, uh, Peter leaving, like a number of things, I think our air cover as a company and our ability to strategically move quickly diminished a little bit over time. Um, and that, that's, you know, there's that structural issue in a lot of things. You yeah. know, the fact that congressmen only serve four-year terms. You know, how do you, how do you incentivize long-term thinking? Um, it's tricky. But, you know, my, my goal when I went into Hulu was always I had this conception of the future of media being, uh, you know, not driven around sort of scarcity and windows and restrictions, but more about abundance and just like, look, you can watch anything yeah. <laughs> anywhere on any device, anytime. It can be like on demand, like, like all of that, because I just think in a world of infinite content, that's where everything has to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you saying that in 2018 seems like, well, duh, it's obvious. Mm-hmm. But I remember that so clearly from the time that, and, and again, in 2018, it's hard to imagine this, but a lot of really smart people were like, you know, why do I need this when I've got my TV? I want to watch TV when I get home at night. I don't want to... Yeah. But now we're living in a world where, uh, you know, where everything's being watched on little screens and, and, and Netflix yeah. is eating television. And um, So what was your strategy at the time or what was your vision at the time for getting to this on-demand, anything you want, anytime you want it world? Yeah. Well, the first big step was when Hulu was first started... The only legal rights we had to content were for ad-supported windows. Mm-hmm. Like so, there's a bunch of uh, crazy history around the rights of it. It turned out like if you wanted to show the uh, you know an episode of Thirty Rock the day after it had aired, there were a couple ways you could do it, but they were legally restricted to those. One was you could be like iTunes and sell the episode for two ninety nine mm-hmm. or whatever it was. The other was this carve out window. Uh, for ad-supported viewing. So we had to you know, have ad breaks in all of our content and put in ads and then share that ad revenue back to the media companies. But that allowed us to get the next day access. The office. And so for people who didn't have TV or missed the episode, you, know, you want to see it the next day, you want to catch up on it, um, we were kind of the one legal way right. to do that short of paying. And I remember that as such a revelation. I missed yeah. the office last night. Well, guess what? Don't worry about it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, look, our strategy, the product design and development is all oriented around the fact that we had that window of content. And it was a constant negotiation. Like some programs, it's very complicated in Hollywood. Like some programs might air on Fox, but it was produced by Sony. And uh-huh. so you got to negotiate with them. And they may say, well, look, we don't want to put the last five episodes on Hulu. We only want to put... The previous season. Or something. Yeah, yeah, like something, or just one episode, yeah. or maybe you do have off weeks. Or sometimes, in some cases, it was weird. They would only show the last three episodes that had aired on TV. So if there was a rerun, you would get three random out-of-order episodes. And so it was a constant, you know, like tweaking of the rights to try to get to that. The next obvious step was going to mobile devices, because uh-huh. we didn't have those rights at first. We were only viewable on a, a web browser. And, you know, with smartphones and tablets getting to it, connected devices to the TV. Uh, you know, so before I left, we had negotiated that right. Then after that became the struggle to get a subscription service off the ground. Like what rights could we get if we were going to charge for this? What content would have to be ad-supported? What could be shown ad-free? Um, so it was always like a series of negotiations to continually increase that rights envelope. 
And then, you know, even before I left, we started looking at some original content as well to try to subsidize the overall package. I mean, my end vision was always that it would be something that was just available everywhere, anytime, all the stuff was available, and there wouldn't be all these restrictions. And um, we even went so far as to look into becoming like a cable company. Mm. Like, what would it take to be an MVPD? Hmm. Would that access? Would that open up access to live as well? Could we do live sports? And it really is going to be like a complete cable replacement, which which now is. There are many versions of that. Right. You know, you can get or Sony. Or there's, there's and, about to be a whole universe of them. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. YouTube TV now or anything. Yeah. We were trying to get to that before everybody, but it was just, you know, it was hard back then to to negotiate through that thicket of different stakeholders to get to that. But look, whether it happened, like now it's going to happen. You know, like I always say at the internet, like you, you either make it happen or it happens to you. Yeah. And it's just a matter of time. Um, and and this world that we're going into now doesn't surprise me, but I'm you know I'm uh, I, I do have some I think regrets about not being able to get there sooner um, because you know you could just see it <laughs> you could envision what it could be. You know. Let's let's do a couple quick hits. Tell me about early. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, left with some old Hulu folks and moved up to San Francisco and, and wanted to do a startup. You know, I'd been with Amazon and when Hulu I left, it was a couple hundred people. I just think I wanted to try the startup experience, something small with some friends. Uh, the first time through it is always like a, such a learning experience for something you do a company. And you realize like how much of your time is, is spent on like, wow, I have to find office space and I have to figure out how to do payroll for... Uh, the people on the team, you have to uh, figure out how to get them health insurance. And, and and at the same time, then you're trying to figure out how to get to product market fit. And we were trying to do this kind of like, uh, we had this vision of a programmable calendar in a way, but it morphed over time into other things. And uh, it was a good learning experience. It didn't like, you know, completely work out the way we wanted it to. And we ended up selling um selling the startup but um, I'm I think I learned so much from that that I'm looking forward to sort of applying to the next mm. go around on this you know we talk about deterministic careers and, and second generation immigrant families you know entrepreneurship and technology is so much a probabilistic game and so you do have to take multiple shots on goal mm-hmm. and so uh, but each time you have to take the learnings away from your previous attempt so I learned a ton from that what did you learn at Flipboard? Flipboard is interesting because you know now we debate a lot about news news on social media the health of the business that was the closest sort of I, I came to working directly at that intersection of news journalism and technology and you get an appreciation for the challenge of news reading apps in that business as a whole. And, and what are the challenges facing companies like the New York Times or, or any sort of media app? And they're twofold. One is that the network effects for news reading tend to be pretty low to non-existent. And the virality of news reading also turns out to be fairly low. And there's a reason that so much of journalism had to go, um, you know, beg on the doorsteps of Facebook and Twitter and companies like that. 
because those companies, they had massive network effects, massive virality. And so all the eyeballs were there, like all the attention supply was aggregated in the hands of a few companies. And so it didn't surprise me that those companies would start investigating news as a business, you know, Facebook family, famously, um, Twitter obviously has a lot of news content traveling through it. And then, you know, even companies like Snapchat are producing media from traditional media companies. Um, but, you know, the challenge for them is that that's sort of uh, not their core business necessarily. It's another type of content that travels through. And so now we're seeing them grapple and struggle with how to deal with their particular issues when it comes to news, you know, um, the tribalism, the, you know, the virality of, of like fake news stories and things like that. And well, I think yeah. I'm going to highlight a point that I think you said, and correct me if I'm misinterpreting this, but news itself is not inherently viral. It's that these networks have this social effect already built into them. And news is just something that can plug into it. But in and of itself, it's not intrinsically on its own viral. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You may have things like BuzzFeed, which can make news stories more viral by putting them into formats like listicles and it's like headline writing and things like that. But if you're running a business itself and you can't make the news, you know, you're just reporting on the news, what are the network effects? You know, if New York Times had... 100 million viewers versus 10 million. What are the network effects of that? It's not so evident when you go to those services that there's a huge positive effect to that. And the fact that, you know, you know, you have multiple outlets reporting on the same story makes it just the most competitive sort of cutthroat business um, out there. So I think that that will always be the challenge, the economic challenge of building anything in that space mm-hmm. as a business. Um, you couple with that the advertising sort of duopoly of Google and Facebook, uh, you know, and even prior to that, things like Craigslist knocking out all the classified ad revenue, and then on top of that, you have journal uh, journalism and industry which always had this idea of Chinese walls and things. So essentially, your top journalists or your top product people are actually separated from the revenue producing right. part of the business. Um, it's just an entire recipe for uh, a very challenging set of conditions that you know journalism companies are continually continuing to grapple with. Mm-hmm. I almost think that you know the future there, like I, my instinct would be that there probably needs to be some more bundling within mm-hmm. the the news business, mm-hmm. and there needs to be a shift more towards something that is akin to Amazon Prime like some sort of bundled membership um, to support this. I think it's just so hard to sit there and subscribe, you know, like if you're a New York Times subscription and then Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and just like chipping away like that, there would be some benefit if a bunch of these got together and said, look, there is some subscription we're going to offer. And by the way, it's not just a subscription to read our articles. We're going to have videos and, you know, because, hey, the New York Times, we... We know culture in New York, you'll get discounts on tickets to Broadway and everything. Like I, I think the same way that advertising once supported kind of a monopoly on the news business and subsidized that business, they're going to have to find um, alternative ways to make it a healthy business. And I think we need it. You know, like the, uh, 
the the checks and balances provided by a healthy uh, press are super important in, in a well-functioning democracy. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Flipboard. Mm-hmm. Or no, Flipboard. Uh, uh, I was moving on to Oculus. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oculus. Yes. Um, you were only there for a year? year and a half. year and a half? A little over a year and a half, yeah. Uh, tell me about Oculus and then I have a specific question. Okay. Just tell me about the business and the, your time yeah. and the opportunity. I mean, virtual reality is one of those things that kind of like um, AI, self-driving cars, smart assistants, number of things. As you know, in tech, the hype cycle moves very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think all of those things are going to be world-changing, <laughs> but they're going to take much longer than people suspect. Uh, and virtual reality is the same. I, I certainly think in terms of the next huge medium that will shift the world, virtual reality is is probably the leading candidate. Um, it's still early, early, early in its life cycle. It's getting better. I mean, they've made a number of huge leaps that make it more comfortable, engaging, and miraculous than ever before. And so it's certainly here to stay. I just think that, um, you know, in tech, right, like you always can see the far future in absolute clarity and sort of all the bumps along the way are harder to anticipate. There are a certain number of hardware type of breakthroughs and price point breakthroughs and, and you know, content learning that has to happen all for virtual reality to become like the, this thing that we all do all the time. Yeah. And it's far from that yet. But I certainly saw in my time at Oculus just glimpses of the future and yeah. what it could be. And so it will come. Yeah. It will come. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, because virtual reality was going to come in the mid-90s, I remember, you know. Like, oh, okay. You yeah. know, but, but um, or for, for years and years and years from the first, me first getting into the web, a video on the web was going to come. It was going to come, it was going to come, it didn't come, and then finally YouTube yeah. broke that. Um, so it's just waiting for that use case where I'm like, oh, yeah, I... I would have to do that. Mm-hmm. If you were going to place a bet, like if I gave you control mm-hmm. of a VC firm and I said only invest in virtual reality startups, mm. what's the use case that you, th- if you were going to place a bet, what's the most likely use case that will be the breakthrough for VR? Hmm. Probably, you know, if I had to place a bet, um, I would say that the ability to, um, overcome the friction of physical distance to interact with people in what feels like sort of direct proximity because I think for all the you know for all the advances in connectivity that come from the internet and smartphones and everything I do actually think that there's a void in the world um, that in America and places like that may come from you know, the decline of religion and institutions like the church and things like that. I just sense that there's this ambient sort of a sense of a loss of community. Mm. And, and technology is partially to blame. Like, we tend to live in our homes now and watch Netflix. I think we don't go out and interact with people. And um, I, I, there's just like this latent sense of loneliness that has pervaded modern society. And... Virtual reality, once it achieves a number of technical breakthroughs, um, can make it just much easier to have that ambient sense of intimacy that comes from being around 
people. Presence. Actually. Presence. Yeah, that sense of presence is yeah. is really important. The sort of random, you know, conversation and 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 that that comes and, you know, I think we really underestimate how much physical distance is a huge source of friction in the world. Like it's one of the largest shadow costs on the economy that we've never really had to grapple with. And the moment that you can overcome that and be anywhere with anyone doing anything at any moment um, is going to change the world in a fundamental way. You know, just the fact that like you don't want to go out on Friday when it's you know it's I raining don't, I out. I don't want to go outside right now. I'll tell I you that. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to go back out in the rain either. You know, it's it's cold and rainy. You're like, I'm just going to stand, just watch some Netflix and stuff, and and that's fine. It's entertaining, but humans are social creatures. We want to be around people. So you know, things like Second Life and all these things that have tried to tackle that problem. Like, I, I do think there's something there. Uh, it's going to take some time to to get to that. But that more than gaming or passive entertainment or things in virtual reality, I think has the best chance to make it something that appeals to everybody. Uh, I like to end with asking people what they're excited about now. And I'm not asking you to blow up your spot and like, oh, here's, here's what Eugene's about to do or anything like that. <laughs> but um, so you could do that if you wanted. Okay. Uh, or, uh-huh. um, you know, oh, Malik said he's into photography these days and that's his jam right uh-huh. now. You know? So... Um, <laughs> What are you interested in, excited about, want to learn about today? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, well, plenty of things. There, there's so, like, one of the, the great things about working in tech is I think you have just this endless, boundless sense of possibility to change the world. Um, I actually am still very, very excited and bullish on video as a medium. And, you know, I, it's like trite to say because, like, all the media companies are trying to pivot to video. But I actually think that. Uh, video as a medium is still underexploited by most of tech. And, and the reason I say that is that uh, unlike text or even music to some extent, video is not a medium that most people learn huh. growing up. Uh, it's hard to master. The reason I think most media companies fail when they say, like, hey, we're going to pivot to video is not that, like, I think the economic case for them pivoting to video is actually very strong. Like, the economics for video ads are much higher and, and, and all of that. It's just that they don't know how to do video. Mm. You know, I, I know many people in many fields who I would consider to be very good writers. I know very few people who I consider like I would hand them a camera and expect yeah. them to be able to make a compelling video. Yeah. And why would they? Like we never learned that until I went to film school really. I loved movies, but I wouldn't say I was a gifted <laughs> filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's so many mediums now where I still feel like their usage of video is point a camera at a person like MOOCs are an example where most of the videos I see are a camera pointed statically at an instructor and then showing PowerPoint slides yeah. Yeah. which to me is somewhat visual but not really video yeah. like if you were to really use video to storytell and to employ the medium to its fullest potential it could impact education it could impact the press and, and media it could impact um all sorts of you know online directories and things like that. There, there's so many places where that skill hasn't um, really been put to the test that I just in general feel like we have yet to see that video really put to its best use. Um, so that's that's definitely probably something that will you know from my time in film school will always be an obsession of mine. Will we ever see a, a movie directed by Eugene Way? <laughs> 
you could you could see some of my student films. I'm not sure I would subject you to that, but uh, someday I I do do uh, plan to do some work behind the camera again. So uh, you know that's that's the fun thing. I, I see product development in tech, filmmaking, and the creative disciplines. They actually have a lot in common, and um, I'm glad to see that both Silicon Valley and Hollywood are starting to work more closely together and to better appreciate um, each other's strengths. Because I think a long time there was just resentment and misunderstanding. and Visual when you, incomprehension, you know, really. Yeah, <laughs> really, really. But they're both um, beautiful, amazing crafts and uh, a huge and important part of our society. Well, Eugene, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. I, you're going to think I'm blowing smoke, but that was one of the most interesting, widest ranging conversations we've had on the show. Thank you. It's, it's been an honor. I really enjoyed it. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.